Welcome to episode number 148 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about analyzing electrostatic ignition likelihood after an explosion incident, and we're doing that with A.L. Zadok, international expert for electrostatic discharge and associated risks and hazards, and A.L. is based out of northern Israel. A.L., welcome to the podcast today. We're happy to have you on. Yeah, happy to be here and to have the podcast with you, and uh, I'm ready for it. Excellent. So this interview really came from some comments and some questions that we had on the podcast, or sorry, on the on the website, it does safety science actually, about electrostatic discharge. So AL has a uh, graduate in physics at Tel Aviv University and electrical engineering at Tel Aviv College in the 70s. Um, he managed the ESD, the electrostatic discharge laboratory there at uh, at the Israel MOD and Armament Development Authority for eight years. And then he's really been involved since the 80s in consultancy, investigation, failure modes of electrostatic discharge and electrostatic hazards um, associated with those discharges for a long, long time. I've, I've read a lot of his work during my academic studies, and he's really a you know an international expert on this topic. When we had this comment on the dust safety science post, we had an incident from Taiwan in a polyethylene pellet silo. Um, and a gentleman posted that, as far as his knowledge with that company, the equipment was grounded, including the silos, the bag filters and ducting, and he was wondering how electrostatic discharge could occur in this fully grounded equipment. And AL really had some really good comments talking through how one might determine whether or not it was electrostatic discharge. And I reached out to uh, AL after that and said, hey, could we do a, you know, a podcast interview walking through this topic? Um, and he very graciously agreed, so we really appreciate that. In the interview, we'll talk a bit through his background. We'll talk about, okay, an explosion happened. How might we go about determining the ignition source and whether the ignition source could be electrostatic discharge or not. And we'll talk specifically about the storage silo of polyethylene pellets as our sort of template or our um, illustrative example of how one might walk through this. So, Ayel, again, I appreciate your time. I know um, you are later on in the day there, we're doing this interview, and you did ask your dog um, quite graciously to, to stay out of the interview if he could, so we appreciate that. Could you start by just sharing some of your, your background and work in industry and, and kind of explain to the audience where you do in these type of industries? My first step in the field of electrostatics was in the uh, what it's called Raphael Institute. It's an uh, armament development in Israel, uh, part of the Ministry of Defense. Uh, I was asked to uh, establish let's say, a small group, very small group, uh, to deal with electrostatic phenomena uh, in explosive materials. The reason is obviously uh, explosive materials could be initiated and the results are uh, unacceptable, especially when uh, people, workers, are around. And... um, in the beginning, it means in the beginning of the 80s, it was very difficult to uh, have information on the subject. First of all, because there was no internet. And, the, <laughs> and every question I wanted to send out of this institute was uh, or had to be uh, you know uh, 
whitened, we called it, to make it clear that uh, the question is okay to go to a civilian uh, institute out of Israel. And then I had to go uh, to wait uh, you know, weeks until I got the answer. So every question that I had, I had no peers around me to discuss it. And uh, the discussion was very, very slow. This, you know, in, in my lectures, I used to say that I knew that somebody before, uh, many years ago invited the wheel. I know that there is a wheel somewhere. I didn't see it. I didn't get any information about it. But I like the characters of this wheel. So I invited myself. And that's about uh, the, the basics of, uh, of my knowledge in electrostatics. That's what uh, made me uh, ask me to go, you know, to the very roots of electrostatics. Each uh, idea, each uh, test that uh, I could uh, dream about it, I did it. And uh, I got the results by myself. Yes, there was a lot of... Uh, mistakes and uh, I can say that I learned more from the mistakes than the, the the good results that I got because for example I had to to recommend about uh, static uh, dissipated flow to use in uh, uh, a certain room where uh, explosive powder is used there. I got three samples from, uh, I think I can say, a UK producer, uh, manufacturer. He, he told me, look, I send you three colors, green, red, and white. They are just the same. <laughs> it was, I checked it in my laboratory and to give you just the the orders of the, the the magnitude, the white was one, the red was ten, and the green was one hundred. Yeah. So I start, you know, uh, doubt the information that I uh, get from, especially from manufacturers, and uh, this attitude uh, caused me, you know, to to go everywhere in, into depth to, for the understanding, for the testing, for uh, even, uh, you know, for question. Uh, I mean, when I was on the conferences out of Israel, even for the questions that I put, I was so uh, convenienced, <laughs> you know, that I know what I'm saying. People, other people cannot tell me Look, it's can uh, on this way, on that way, the value is uh, between this and that. Uh, you know, it's so this is my background, the professional background. It, it, I, I didn't choose it, but, uh, but uh, the needs <laughs> in, in my work in the, in the institute 
made me to go to, to in such a way. So uh, and another question in this uh, that I uh, was asked uh, by some American colleague, uh, we were talking about uh, electrostatics in the oil business, in oil fields and problems. And then we had some uh, discussion about electrostatic and electronics. And he got my answers and he called me and said, look, I can't understand how you can go so deep in electrostatics and uh, in oil fields and in electrostatics in electronics. It's quite different fields. I told him country. And uh, unfortunately, I have no uh, colleagues here. So I have to deal <laughs> with everything and to make my best. And this is how I uh, become uh, familiar with the different fields of electrostatics. It's including uh, clean rooms, it's including uh, working with uh, industrial dust, not just uh, explosive dust. So it was an, an example. So uh, why I'm familiar with different faces of the phenomena. Dust is one, liquids, vapors are quite different. And I'm very into these two. And uh, of course, electrostatics and uh, in, uh, in electronics, in electro-optics, microelectronics, yeah, Intel, uh, Tower Semiconductor, uh, our uh, some of uh, Apple, <laughs> yeah, are some of my clients. So I'm hard to say it, but uh, you know, it's a uh, it's reality. Well, I want to jump in there. I mean, you've you've hit a couple interesting points that have, as a, as a we'll say as a student of the world of dust explosion, there's all these different aspects, industrial application, relevance for you know, lumber mills, the pharmaceutical, to the wide range of variety of industries, down to flame propagation, combustion, deflagration, smoldering combustion, oxygenated, different thermal events. And then there's, you know, ignition source and electrostatic. If you take every element of the Pentagon, each one of these are can be very detailed down to the small minute of sub-microscopic and microscopic levels, all the way up to an employee with burn injuries. <laughs> Um, on his face and hands. And there's, there's a wide range of scales of times that are involved. Electrostatic discharge is one of the areas that is one, very technically challenging, two, very, very varied in the different types of sources of electrostatic discharge, but then even like you're saying, different types of fields that are involved in that. I mean, I, I can imagine from where you, your background in the 80s, you mentioned the difficulties of communication. You had to get a, a question authorized to send publicly. You'd have to then send it out to, you know, get approval, and then you got to mail the question out. <laughs> then you got to get the response eight weeks later, and then you got to discuss. So you had to really set everything up and explore it on your own, which created this really vast depth of knowledge for electrostatic hazards, uh, which which you see in the the work that you publish in lectures and the work that you do. It's like that's that's why you know, <laughs> you know, more than most people in the world in this topic is that level of depth. So. That's kind of what I want to bring together here was this is a very challenging subject. We could do a, a 
a lecture series, 10 podcast episodes on electrostatic discharge and how they ignite. Um, and, and the audience, some of them I know would be very interested and others might be saying that's not the right thing for them. But I want to kind of jump in today to this more of, we have an incident, you know, besides calling a yell and saying, come in and help, which we should do, <laughs> you know, how, what are some things that people should be aware of? Because we see this all the time where you have an incident that it must've been electrostatic discharge and you kind of wipe your hands clean of it, <laughs> you know, and, and then you move on to, you know, nothing gets changed, nothing gets updated. And when I saw your really thoughtful responses for this polyethylene silo, I said, that's the way you should really think about it. You know, the stepwise procedure of eliminating what could be ignition source for the dust. Maybe you're looking at MIE, you know, what could be the potential electrostatic discharges that are available? Okay, you have one, two, and three, cone. This this is not my area, so I'll let you talk through it. But um, you have different possibilities. How do you match those up? So that's sort of where I want to go in this interview. So let's just kind of talk about that. Have, you have an explosion incident in a powder handling operation, and we'll use the, the polyethylene storage silo as an example. Just how would you go about determining which ignition sources would have initiate that incident? Like what's What's step one as an investigator that's coming in to figure that out? It's a small question. <laughs> With a big answer. <laughs> I, try, I try to squeeze the answer, but the answer uh, uh, will be a little bit uh, long, I think. How about the highlights? Yeah. After an explosion, especially industrial facility that experiences fire or even explosion, there's massive uh, destruction and many ruins around. So the, the area is, uh, looks uh, very different uh, compared with the uh, original facility. So when I come to investigate the, the root case for such an explosion, especially an explosion, my approach is uh, compared with, uh, I, I wrote it for me for the interview now, it's about uh, uh, certain steps that uh, uh, I call it uh, maybe general steps or uh, steps that uh, are suitable uh, for investigating uh, any kind of investigation uh, of ignition sources. The other five steps are focusing on the specific uh, electrostatic ignition sources to find it or identify it. I try to go very fast or in brief uh, on these uh, steps. Uh, you, if you want me to, to go in depth to one of them or to give the example, uh, just stop me and uh, and I do it. Well, let's walk through, I mean, give the names of the 13 steps and then the, the plus five and, and we'll see what comes up. When I come to, to such an area that uh, experienced an explosion, the first step going to the area. I'm sitting in my office or in some office in the plant and the first uh, step is I call it learning and uh, acquaintance you know, with the facility, the facility construction, the process. I make it uh, to design documents, to the uh, scan of systems uh, like uh, PNID, you know, uh, work procedures, uh, 
MSDS of the uh, documents of the process uh, materials to be familiar with this. The physical process conditions and you know the, its tolerances, uh, maybe special orders to be meticulous with the process that are specific for it. Now I get some idea about what the facility produced or used to produce. Yeah. The, the second step is collecting information about the relevant uh, say properties of the process materials. Uh, again, I use uh, plant documents, technical literature, uh, even laboratory physical tests uh, like uh, electrical volume resistivity, dielectric coefficient, uh, explosion limits, minimum ignition energy and temperature, flashpoint, etc. This is about the materials involved. The third uh, step is looking at the management and asking for the history of failures in the facility. I collect in the, this information to checking the investigation report, uh, summaries, interviews, workers, uh, management, and I work out all this information. In the fourth step, I'm going to the to visit the area where the event happened. As visiting the, the affected uh, facility with the stand is first of all to identify the affected area, to see uh, parts of the original facilities that I already was familiar with them in the from my first uh, step and and the current locations of it because if it was an explosion not just fire it means that parts moved yeah. uh, indication for uh, fire explosion even detonation at the facility and systematic recording of this uh, gathered data, and including photos. My photos, other photos, even previous photos from history of the facility. Uh, the third, uh, the fifth uh, step is uh, interview with the witnesses. It means uh, operators of the facility at the time of the event, uh, shift manager, facility manager, facility engineer, and what I'm making in this uh, step is comparing, you know, the events and the shift manager, not from the police uh, point of view, but to see if there is no uh, some detail, important detail, relevant detail that it missed with the, one of the sites and to go in depth to that. And the sixth uh, step is uh, checking the data that uh, was recording on the facilities on the control and operational system of the facility at the time of the event. Parameters uh, as recorded during the manufacturing steps try to identify anomalous parameters at the time of the event itself, um, identifying failures during the process, 
uh, you know, the electricity fold down, uh, identify on uh, chemical materials uh, content uh, in the beginning moment of the event, uh, which is not so easy to identify. And recording all this data and uh, estimating its consequences on the uh, on the process itself. When I am saying it in my mind, I remember a special uh, event in the chemical plant in Israel that, uh, as you said, people didn't uh, find any other uh, ignition source or cause for the explosion. So I said, okay, it's static electricity. And I used to say, look, my first degree in physics was uh, astrophys in astrophysics. I know very good about uh, black holes. Static electricity is not black holes, and it doesn't swallow any thoughts of you. <laughs> uh, we cannot say that it's static electricity until we prove it. I'm coming from uh, uh, a place that believes it's not static electricity. If I will come this time to the opposite side, I say, okay, now we'll try to find a solution. But the consequences of uh, all this data and on the process uh, is very uh, important because uh, I go into uh, small, I give you a small uh, example to understand. In that uh, event I mentioned, it was an explosion in a, a reactor and the uh, feeding uh, pipe, or powder feeding pipe of it was exploded, but it was according to the, the signs on the, on the parts of the, this uh, pipe, it seemed to me that it was not just explosion, simple explosion, it was detonation. And after I said it, the plant engineer said, look, during the, the regular uh, production, as a side uh, action of the, of the process, there is some explosive material that is being produced, but it's, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, about uh, two, three, four miles and it means that uh, it's some grams uh, mixing with uh, 16 uh, cubic meter of uh, liquid. So it's nothing. But I said, okay, but you say that was electricity breakdown. What happened during this? And this question lead to, uh, let's say, uh, the investigation to the cause of the explosion. It was not elect uh, static electricity. It was that uh, gave rise to uh, a huge amount of this explosive within the mixture in the reactor. And when they start the electricity, and they, so the electricity was okay, and they start the, the process again, they blew up the, the facility because of this side reaction <laughs> and and reacted all of the explosive material so no one knew it was there afterwards <laughs> yeah the seventh step i, I call it uh 
comparative analysis of the original uh, process plane against the event story that I got from the witnesses. And uh, I try to identify the difference points between, okay, with this, I go to the, in the area to analyze or the, to uh, initial analyzing of the same findings uh, to identify the equipment, the specific equipment in which the event began. I look for signs of uh, soot, heat, rust, color peeling, uh, distortions in the equipment parts, uh, location of these uh, uh, parts in the stand, and even missing parts. Con I make conclusions uh, regarding the, the event type itself, as I mentioned, the fire, explosion, detonation, and about the equipment okay, where the uh, event began. In this tape, I can say that with uh, professional uh, uh, colleagues or delegates of the fire brigade and uh, sometimes the insurance company. They are asking to be, to be involved in this. And after that, I got more or less the picture of what happened and where it happened. And from this, I go to uh, analyze if there was a possibility, any possibility for static electricity to be involved. And I'm going to analyze the electrostatic process that could, took uh, place in the, in, in the specific uh, equipment. Uh, it means uh, identifying the conditions for the accumulation of electrostatic charges in the process and in, in parts of the forming uh, electrostatic calculations and estimation of the electrostatic charge density and electro uh, electrical potentials uh, that uh, could be accumulated uh, in the materials and uh, in the uh, equipment parts. So, Eyal, before you go into that step, I wanted to jump in because this is really um, interesting and useful information. And so I have a host of questions, but what I wanted to suggest was, so we've done eight steps now, and then we have five steps for electrostatic hazards. Is that right? Yeah. So to the audience that's listening to this discussion, we'll probably leave it in next week on the podcast. You'll hear the second part of this interview where we go into electrostatics. This first part, I think it's really like a, it's almost a lecture on how to do an incident investigation down to the ignition source. Um, and then the second part will be, okay, well, is electrostatics a valid, valid ignition source? So I had three questions on the first number of steps that you, you discussed. And I'll, I'll say the three questions and we'll kind of go into one each individually. The first one was, so lost history of failures. We get this quite a bit where step three was, okay, have you had, have you experienced this before or what other near miss have you experienced? And the answer is always none. And then you dig in a bit deeper. So I want to get some input on that. The second question I want to get some input on is this coding of the data, because you end up with a lot of information from photos to interviews to questions. I know there's an, an a government official or an incident investigator out there that's listening to this going, geez, I wish we could share some of those how-to notes. You made a really good point that you shouldn't need to be very careful to go about proving your hypothesis correct and do a more active job of disproving your hypothesis, if that makes sense. So I, I read this from Richard Feynman biography when he did the Challenger investigation where he felt like he was the only one in the room trying to disprove the O-ring hypothesis. 
and and in the end did more to prove it <laughs> where everybody else was just trying to come up with well these are the couple tidbits of information that support our hypothesis and that's what you're seeing with electrostatic is where you say it has to be electrostatic and then you'll find like six reasons why <laughs> but you ignore the five reasons why it's not electrostatic as the source so those are the three areas that came to mind let's tackle this first one so step three loss history You've come in, you, you've done your learning and your acquaintance, you've collected the properties of material, and you sort of ask the facility, you know, have you experienced anything like this before? What common challenges do you see in this step when you're doing its investigations? You know, is the, is the response generally, well, we had no issue before, and how do you, how do you get past that? Failure history. I mean, any uh, failure that happened in the facility, not directly connected to the current event, that I investigate. I mean, I, and I think that, uh, you know, when you look in wide uh, view about the uh, failure history of the facility, you can get information about the behavior of the workers, the, even the, you know, the, the nature of the facility. You can make a... Um, uh, you know, some chemicals, metallic uh, uh, reactor, and you can make it with a glass-lined uh, metallic reactor. It's quite uh, different from point of view of uh, failures that could uh, happen. Not, again, not connected to static electricity, or at least not uh, directly, but uh, such, uh, you know, information uh, can give me, uh, first of all, that the people in the, in the, uh, working in the, this facility are aware of failures. Uh, yeah, when the electricity falls down, all of us are. Well, when the temperature is a little bit too high and the buzzer doesn't work and you didn't see the, the the information on the uh, on the screen because you didn't notice the 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 buzzer didn't work so you didn't had uh, any reason to look uh, you know carefully on the screen so you missed the the information and all these small parts of information uh, give me the the picture about the the nature of the facility including the human behavior which is very important. Uh, I, I said to myself that, you know, with time, I become more a uh, social worker or, uh, because sometimes I ask the worker, look, did you uh, hold the, the, the screwdriver with your right hand or with left hand? And he looks at me and says, I'm right-handed. Why are you... You ask me the, such a question, you know, but for me, it's very relevant because from the right side, he can uh, reach, let, let's say, some failure point with this. With the left hand, he can't physically. So such an information you know, about the, the behavior of the people, about uh, the awareness of them, uh, about uh, uh, failure history telling me a lot about what uh, could happen in the current uh, event and if they 
were aware of uh, different uh, information that are, they got on the screens and maybe they didn't see it or uh, for some reason. Yeah. yeah, and I think what I hear you saying is if, if you get that response of we've never experienced this before, um, you want to widen the lens a bit because everyone's focused on this big bang that destroyed the silo. And of course that never happened before because, and say somebody is injured. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking for, for, for the last explosion in the facility. Exactly. No. no, you want to widen the lens and I'll give an example. Just happened to me yesterday. We had a dust safety professionals ticket come in, a request come in through dust safety professionals um, looking for a uh, combustible dust testing. And the, the, gentlemen i generally always ask is the facility experiencing fires now and it was a consultant that was working with a facility and he said well well no they're they're not i asked them they said they're not and i i just noted that down and and then i i switched the question i said have they experienced any thermal events and he said oh yeah well they've had some smoldering or the pipes got hot in this case and I, when i said fire i was thinking all thermal events but when I said fire, he heard, you know, flaming, open flame fire. No, they haven't had a fire. So just switching the terminology from fire to a thermal event got more information. So that's that's kind of one way, like widen the lens. The other is, I, I really like the way you put it. When doesn't the process work right for you? <laughs> like, when does the screen go black? When does power drop down? When does the temperature go high? Because those are, are upset conditions that may or may not be near misses, that may or may not be relevant to the investigation you're doing. And if you don't collect that information in that step three, then you can't use it. So you can use these sort of tricks of widening the lens, ask different questions, use different terminology. And nobody's trying, generally trying to hide something to be, to be, if they really thought that this could happen today, <laughs> they probably wouldn't have came to work. <laughs> My point of view is that, that, that uh, everyone is telling the truth. And, uh, and most detailed uh, as they can, as they remember, you know, but uh, memory is uh, different as people are different. <laughs> you know, defense, differ from one each other, you know. And uh, so two people that looking at the facility from uh, two points and uh, the, the moment of the event and say, no, it was explosion. And say, no, first of all, was the black uh, smoke. And it, it's quite uh, physical, uh, different physical, uh, you know, evidence. You talked at one point about coding the information you're collecting. So photos, P&ID diagrams, all the information, uh, interviews, you know, insights. Is there a system that you, you use or could point people to to do that or some kind of tips that you've had? Just I, I know it can be a lot of information. So somebody that's listening to this might have even if they're inside of a company and investigating these incidents, this might be a helpful piece for them. I try to squeeze th this information or to, <laughs> you know, even to use uh, why I'm saying it, because it's a lot of information. It's, it's, it's uh, a lot of papers, you know, it's a lot of documents. It, you know, your question reminds me, you know, Teva company, the pharmaceutical uh, company in Israel. Uh, one site in south of Israel, there was an explosion in the centrifuge. They tried to to take me to the to the room where it happened, and I said, no, 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 don't take me. First of all, I want to see the PNID. I want to see the documents. I want to see. And I took. Uh, I asked the uh, uh, you know yellow marker 
and I heard about the, the information about the facility and okay, it was, uh, you know, the, the facility was, oh, the, the facility was the, the, the centrifuge itself. So the, this is the equipment. There was no uh, question about it. Uh, my question was just was if the explosion, it was an explosion, heavy centrifuge was, uh, you know, exploded to small parts and, uh, I asked them, I want to investigate if the explosion start outside and came into or started inside and then went outside. And they looked at me and say, how could you figure it out? I said, okay, you can come with me and look. And I showed them the parts of some pipes connected to this centrifuge, the signs of the, the black uh, color on some uh, parts of the pipe, uh, the suit itself, and uh, the, the way that the pipe was broken. Uh, and I told them, look, it means that the explosion was inside the pipe. It could be, it could come just from inside the centrifuge, not from outside of the pipe. Otherwise, the pipe was exploded in its, uh, the, or along uh, the, the old pipe, or in the other, 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 yeah, in the other side of the, the pipe. It was about six meters pipe. Yeah. And say, if it was broken by the, very close to the centrifuge, so such uh, questions, uh, I take the, the, the white, the yellow marker and I just put, you know, the color on the relevant, uh, uh, parts of this, uh, huge scams. And I'm focusing on this. Yes, I have to hold all the, the, the big paper, but I'm focusing on this. And sometimes I ask to make me, you know, a copy just so part of the scam, which is, uh, I'm focusing on it and I'm not carrying the, the, you know, uh, 10 diagrams of the, uh, of the plant. And, uh, so. I'm, I, I can't say that I'm not analyzing through this, you know, analyzing the information. I'm not just gathering, as I just uh, said. It's it, it's together with uh, some analyzing and uh, estimate and what is, uh, I can't say not important, but less important. And I put it aside. And uh, so, yes, I have a a file. I gather the, all this uh, physical information, and I use a lot of the yellow marker. Where the yellow is there, it means it, it, it's important. Or for me, for for the current time, it's important for me. And uh, with this, I'm going on and on. Now, the order of the steps that I mentioned. Is very important. It doesn't mean that you cannot change uh, one by one. I mean, uh, number two and number three, or number three and number four. But you can't jump from uh, number two to number 
because information to estimate or to judge the, the, the information, the new information that you get. And I try to, to make a, compare, a comparative analysis with this all information uh, that, that I got from all sides. That's what I was going to say. The comparative analysis step is where you sort of check yourself, right? You have your hypothesis, your hypotheses. Yeah. And you, yeah. You, yeah. you distill to what's relevant to those, to proving or disproving those hypotheses. That's like your yellow marker and your red marker. And then does the story make sense? So that comparative analysis, the, the incident scenario that you've developed, what information's positive in that and what's saying what's against it and sometimes you know i find that my way was wrong and i'm stop maybe going uh, back a little bit yeah another option to check yeah well i think i think that makes sense i mean that's the last point i want to hit on the, the list that you said was i really like that you had disproving static electricity and some of the old textbooks like uh, the 1920s and 1910s for grain elevators you'll see a lot of ignition sources blamed on lightning <laughs> like a lot a lot more than than i would think is physically possible when i read through them and it's like that was the default <laughs> if we can't figure anything else out then it must have been lightning <laughs> you have a tower you have some metal parts you have lightning <laughs> so it's like yeah. the default condition um like so a good thing to check was what's it you know was it stormy in that area when the explosion happened? <laughs> Were there storm clouds? Because that might prove or disprove the lightning hypothesis. Yeah, it was really but, uh, but it was lightning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to leave that off as the last point. And just it triggered my thinking of this Richard Feynman biography on the Challenger explosion, where he might have been the last thing in, in that in the book where he wrote, if you want to be a scientist, start with thinking you're wrong and try to prove yourself wrong. And if you do that, then you'll you'll come up with the right answer at the end of the day. But if you get stuck always trying to prove your, if you're only looking for information that's going to prove your hypothesis right, then you're probably going to end up with the wrong answer most of the time. And and you know, lightning when the sky's clear might be the thing that you suggest. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Uh, I give you an example, a uh, small example. Uh, I think your background in the MO, in the Canadian MOD, yeah? Yes, before combustible dust, I was in defense research yeah. as well. Yes. Detonators, uh, I don't know. Are yeah. you? Yes. Okay, there, there is a pin-to-case detonator. You know the, how it's composed of. Yep. Yeah, okay. So so uh, there was uh, some explosion during uh, preparing uh, a test, this uh, detonator. Uh, some... Uh, Investigators that uh, were looking at uh, said, look, it's not uh, electromagnetic radiation, it's not this and it's not that. Maybe it's uh, static electricity, but how it could be static electricity? The detonator is like a short circuit. It's uh, about uh, one, three or two, three ohms, uh, you know, uh, uh, wire inside. So it couldn't, couldn't be a static electricity. And I said, I don't know, maybe you have to, uh, I told them, you have to figure out it's a, uh, it's not only a high current, it's a high voltage that uh, the, the current maybe uh, broke the, uh, the bridge wire inside, but the high voltage uh, jumped within the, the space that uh, was created there. 
and ignite the the material. They told me, look, it's that your idea is not uh, looks real. I said, okay, give me some, one or two uh, detonators. I tried it in my laboratory. Three kilovolts was enough to ignite it. It was <laughs> so <laughs> you understand. So, you, you know, and it, it was so easy and simple and cheap to make simulation to, to shake, you know, the idea. So don't be a philosophy, uh, a big philosopher. So and I, I think that's a great point to leave off on. And in the close that I'll share, the last the last story that comes to mind from Richard Feynman. But I want to I want to let you go for this interview, Al. Um, we're going to have you back on, and and you and I will do the recording right after this. So. Stay on after the, the interview. I can go for the another <laughs> hour now. Okay. We're, we're going to have you back yeah. on to talk about the electrostatic yeah. part in just a moment. But I do want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for walking through this process for incident investigation. And I'll reach back out here in just a moment. Thank you. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and A.L. Zaduck. And we've been talking about what was originally to be analyzing electrostatic ignition likelihood after an explosion incident. And we really actually dove into explosion incident investigation down to the ignition source. And it looked like we were going to get quite heavy into ignition source and electrostatic ignition. So we decided to break it into two interviews. But I really liked one going through AL's background, learning about such a challenging topic and studying in such a way. I mean, they didn't have podcasts back in the, the 1970s, 80s, I'm aware of, that they could learn about electrostatic ignition like they can here. So this, this information was hard to come by. And it really meant that tests need to be developed and run and completed on, on every aspect down to the very, you know, detailed view of this. And that's where the, that's the, that's the background that AL comes from and, and really how he built this knowledge in this area and his extensive expertise. He gave a, the first half of a, uh, I think a 13 step framework for investigating uh, explosion in the industrial facility. Step one was learning and acquaintance with the, the facility, with the material, with the PIDs and other um, parts of the process. Step two was collecting the properties of the process materials. So what are the combustion properties, maybe explosion properties, um, properties of the, the facility, the materials the facility is using. Step three was lost history. Um, step four was to visit the event area. And here's a key tip. That's step four. There were three steps before we actually went and saw what blew up. So, you know, that helps you get your, your hypothesis set up and um, your ideas put together before you run to that step. Step five was interview with witnesses. Step six was um, recording data from the facilities. What data is being recorded? Are there temperature monitors? Are there on a slip belt monitors? Are there different information they can use? What's the the process itself? What if it's a batch reactor or whatever it is? You know, what kind of data do we have to help prove and disprove our hypothesis there? And then we get into step seven, which we called comparative analysis, or AL called comparative analysis. That's like sitting down, taking everything together, your hypothesis, your data, your interviews, your properties and materials and saying what makes sense can we prove or disprove these hypotheses that we're developing and i'll have to ask a yell afterwards on the the next steps but i have eight was any possibility for electrostatic ignition and nine was sort of having then a full picture of the incident so we're going to come back next week on the podcast um, and do the second part where we start talking about electrostatic ignition sources we talked about three areas that we pulled out from this um, one what do you do when there is no loss history or seemingly no loss history. We talked about widening the lens there about, okay, can we ask the questions in a different way? Can we look at different types? You know, what, when does the process just not work well? When does it bind up? When do you have to do 
manual shutdowns, those are all keys that might be relevant to the the incident that you're looking at in in that moment. Uh, we talked about coding the data, and we didn't get too deep into this other than really it's a process of identifying what's relevant, and more importantly, probably what's not relevant to this current situation you're looking at. Because you might have 2,000 pages of documents, and 20 might be important, right? So you need to try to figure that out. And then step three was this disproving hypothesis. And, and AL mentioned a really interesting you know, case study where he said it was really simple just to test and prove this. And I'll close on this last note. I've, I've mentioned a couple of times this Richard Feynman documentary and the Challenger explosion. So at one point in the investigation of Challenger, there was all this back and forth discussion. Could it be O-rings? Could it be this and that? And and like things that weren't possible or relevant. And in the documentary, Richard Feynman talks about, he, he's kind of fed up. He, I think he kind of stopped going to some meetings and then finally came back to a meeting and he brought a glass of ice water with him. And he brought a little piece of rubber from the O-ring and when the meeting started, he put the rubber in the glass of ice on the table and waited. And 15 minutes into the meeting, he said, okay, we've talked about a lot of things here. We've spent two weeks discussing all these different things. Here's a piece of the O-ring. Here's it before I put it in the ice, another piece. I can't break this one. And he put the one out of the ice water and just snapped it. So this is the hypothesis we need to focus on. The O-ring can snap when you freeze them. Um, it was just a simple experiment. He did it at the table while the meeting was going on. And you know, probably saved you know years of, of other investigating other things to try to figure out what happened there. So it, it circles around to Ale's point, I think, that just doing a little bit of testing in these instances might get you a long way to say, yes, this is possible, no, this isn't possible. And it could be simple things. It doesn't have to be really big, large scale. I mean, it'd be nice if we could you know, blow up a silo on a test site to see if the same thing happened, but it's probably going to take a while and be expensive. So what are the simple tests that you can use to evaluate and prove and disprove these hypotheses? So we'll leave it off this week on the podcast. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you stay safe and healthy out there this week and appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day with the work that you're doing out there. 